Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, I think it's appropriate this morning to say good morning, church. So glad to see you here. For some of you, this is just a normal Sunday get-up time. For others, we'll see them second service. I'm just thankful every single time we have, uh, have the prep that we do uh, in worship. And this morning, I think it's especially appropriate to be reminded of uh, the name of Christ and how valuable it is uh, that we have a risen Savior, one who has conquered death. Amen? Uh, we have three, three battles this morning, all right? Three battles. The first, it is daylight savings time. And uh, the potential for you to be uh, a little bit tired and hoping, man, let's just grind this out. Um, I wanna, I'm praying that uh, you'll be able to pay attention. The second problem we have this morning is it's daylight savings time and we're doing a warning passage out of Scripture. So there's a potential somebody in the room will have a nightmare uh, falling asleep partway through hearing this. Uh, this is a direct warning. It's one of the strongest warnings, not just in the book of Hebrews, but in scripture. It is one that has caused people a lot of concern. And I, and I want us to be able to spend a little bit of brain power on here. And so I'm praying that uh, the Lord will, will uh, keep us alert. The third one is this warning falls right before Lord's Supper. And uh, this warning is a parallel to the Lord's Supper passage. So all three of these things have all of this importance, uh, and there's a great potential that we could miss that. I'm praying uh, that uh, if your neighbor just looks a little bit off, you'll bump them, say, this is for you, all right? <laughs> you can help them personalize it. I don't know if you remember uh, when you were you know, coming up through Sunday school, for those of you that did, the old connect the dots uh, pictures. You remember those? Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I would look at something like this and I'd go, man, I wonder what picture this is going to make. <laughs> Do you remember that? But as you get a little bit older and you see the dots, you see the basic outline, eventually you can say, oh, I see where this is headed. You were able to connect the dots in your head before you see them all put together. And, and I believe this morning we're in a passage that the first time that you begin to work through different warnings that are in Scripture, you're saying, man, I wonder where this is going. But if you have studied Scripture, if you've stayed faithful in it for any length of time, it'll be like this connect-the-dots picture where eventually you'll say, oh, I see where this is headed. You'll be able to connect those dots. Now, there are still some holes in the passage because the assumption is that you'll continue to connect the dots as you look at other passages of Scripture. But this one is depending on you remembering a few things. We're in a warning passage, and one of the things that uh, we have said all the way through the book of Hebrews is the book of Hebrews is written by one author, and he has an intended audience. It's a group of Hebrew believers that have been driven off because of persecution and now have come back home. But because they are Hebrew believers, they're in that first 30 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection when there still was a temple. So there's still sacrifices going on while they are putting their complete case, their 
all of their faith in Jesus Christ as the finished crucified one, the sacrifice for their sins. This is a dramatic leap of faith. They are saying, I believe in Jesus. I don't have to go any longer to the temple. And this is a, a unique period of time. The author of Hebrews is writing to these people who are beginning to waver in their faith. And some of them are saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do. We have all of this persecution. We still have the same basic cultural distinctives. Maybe I could just go back and spend some time in the, the temple and I'll still worship Jesus, but I'm going to do this as well until we get through this because the persecution is literally killing me. And he's writing to these people to say, stay faithful. So what do you do when you write to a group of people that are uh, working through the changes in their culture? Well, the author of Hebrews, who I think is Luke, I think Luke goes all the way back to where they were in Kadesh Barnea. Do you remember the first time we come out of Egypt? We've all been set free, salvation story. All of these salvation stories go back and God says, hey, I showed you a little picture of what I'm gonna do in a real and a profound way through Christ. And he sets them free out of slavery. He does amazing miracles. They get right to the door of the promised land, they don't go in. And then it's 40 years that they're wandering in the desert. And at Kadesh Barnea, they come to a place that is called the waters of Meribah. That is, they come to a place where they uh, did not follow God and they were bitter because of the weeping when God says, well, then you can't go into the land. 40 years, they come back to a same location and they're about ready to go in and Moses is reminding them, do you remember what you did the first time? Don't do that. And he tells them, you're gonna go in the land, you're still gonna struggle, stop it. And Kadesh Barnea is that place where all these warnings happen. Author of Hebrews is taking them back and saying, do you remember in Kadesh Barnea, it's been about 40 years? Do you want to know at the writing of this book, it's almost 40 years since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? They don't know that within three years of reading these words, the temple will be destroyed. There will not be any longer a sacrifice. There'll be nowhere else to run. Either Jesus is the truth or they have no hope. And he's preparing them. But the warnings that he gives them, every warning is consistent because the author is consistent and he is using imagery and words from that time period. We'll see that this morning. So with that in your mind, I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. This is a warning, I believe, to believers, one that we should take seriously. Let's stand and read this together. Scripture says this, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Remember earlier days when after you'd been enlightened, you endured hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions and other times you were companions of those who were treated in that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners. You accepted with joy. That should be underlined in our Bibles. Accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you knew that you yourselves have a better enduring possession. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you've done God's will, you might receive what was promised for in a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. If he draws back, I have no pleasure in him, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Do you believe that's true? You may be seated. Just two main points this morning. I know that's a violation of preaching law. Two main points, but I think they're worth uh, consideration. Um, and, and the question that drives these points is this. Is this just an observation that the author is making, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Is this just an observation he's making, or is this a warning? And I would say to you, this is a warning. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. The reason I believe that is, there were sacrifices for sins going on at the temple. There were other places. Uh, of course, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those were not the way. They needed to put their whole case in Christ's hands. But if we deliberately go on sinning, he's saying, if we deliberately go on as if Jesus Christ hasn't done anything, he says, you already know the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I think it's more than an observation. I think this is a warning. And the next question that comes up in our mind is, is this somebody who has lost their salvation, is an apostate, or something else? So let's consider that. The first thing I would have you see in this passage is that there is a, a, a straight-out warning, do not trample on grace. Don't trample on grace. There's three classic imp- interpretations of this passage. I want to walk through these, and then I want us to center on what I, I believe it is saying here. Um, I want to remind you each time that we come to a passage where there can be multiple views, um, here what we do is we focus on the book. Amen? So I want to focus on the word. You're going to run into a brother or sister in Christ in another location who also focuses on the book. Your goal is not to be the kind of person that every single time you run into somebody who doesn't think like you, you anathematize them, okay? Just stop it listen to them, they might actually have an an intelligent observation that will cause you to think. We're to to strengthen one another and to push one another forward. I think there are three views, and people, as they read this, can come to those conclusions. As they're reading the passage, I want to give you what I believe is the strongest view. I do not want you to run from here and anathematize somebody who is a brother or sister in Christ, okay? Can you guys check that box? Don't put this on Instagram and thumbs down everybody else who doesn't believe like you eventually will at the end of this message. (laughs) Three classic interpretations. One, it warns against the loss of salvation. 
Um, we, we've talked about this in other places. Um, I, I just don't believe that that jives with the rest of scripture where we see security. If you want a little more on that, you can go back to our talk about uh, this in, in uh, Hebrews 3, 4, uh, in Hebrews 6, we talk about that loss of salvation view. I put some passages in there uh, in the notes if you want those where you can go look at places that seem to secure us finally. God does not abandon his family, amen? He doesn't abandon them. Uh, he reserves the right to punish you so you get your head right, but he does not abandon you. Second possibility, this warns a false convert or an apostate. This is more probable, but still problematic. I want you to notice in there, it says, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth. Here's the author of Hebrews putting himself in the same camp with those who go on sinning. If we, believers, continue to do this. That's not the only place where there's indications. It's all the way through the passage. Uh, verse 29, how much worse a punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he, he who? The individual who is doing the trampling by which he was sanctified. Well, how can you be both sanctified and out of the family and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Verse 30, for we know the one who has said. Once again, he's going back and applying himself to the group as a whole. He's speaking to believers and he's saying, this is something that might be happening in this room today. By the way, I want you to hear this. I believe that statistically, somebody in here today is listening to this passage, you have followed the Lord, you have continued in sin, or you have a family member that is continuing in sin, and they're in danger of what is said right here. When we apostatize or cast people out, which we really want to do, uh, this is just seems to be, at least in the United States, one of our favorite things, deciding whether or not anybody was saved, right? Oh, they did that? I'm not even sure if they're saved. That's what we say. You will hear people mutter it under their breath. They will accept that uh, without anybody even going and ringing in on whether or not that should be said. That should not be our assumption. We should not do those things. I want you to notice in here, uh, the author of Hebrews and Paul, Peter, uh, the rest of scripture you will see when they are talking about Hell, when they are talking about an eternity, they use the word eternal damnation, eternal separation. They use eternal in front of that word. It happens from the Gospels all the way through the New Testament. That word eternal is, is missing from this context. He's talking about something that could happen to somebody in the room right here where God says judgment falls on you in order that you might come up and be ready to see me in the family. Third possibility, it warns a believer with a seared conscience. You just might put next to that for your own uh, reading and edification, Ephesians 4. Read the whole context. I want us to see the Old Testament context here. So this is somebody with a seared conscience. In other words, uh, you've been battling back and forth. You've been overwhelmed by life. You have fallen back into a pattern of sin. You know what it is that God actually would have you be about um, and it's just become hard. There's a famous statement by Muggridge that uh, Christianity wasn't tried and found lacking, and so they went on to atheism. 
No, Christianity was found hard and it was left untried. This is what the scripture is indicating is that when you're following the Lord, do you know that the world isn't going to rise up and just say, man, I love that you're doing that. Just look around. You have godly principles. You have godly opinions. You look around and you have grace. You're thoughtfully engaging the world with what it is that you are convicted by. The world will not love that. They're not going to love it. So what is it? that begins to happen, you you endure persecution, you continue to follow the Lord, or you just say, Lord, this is too much, I I don't wanna do that. I'm gonna do my own thing, I believe you're up there, but you stiff arm the Lord. I want you to read just for context, once again, uh, we're at that uh, Kadesh Barnea time, they've rejected the Lord, they haven't gone in, and that's this passage that he keeps drawing from. In Numbers chapter 15, There is a a few statements, and I would just circle verse 22, read that context there. But in essence, what he says is, as you are going about living as a congregant, as you are going about your life, there are going to be seasons where you will sin unintentionally. You're going to be walking around, and there's going to be some of these Amorites and some of these other um, worshipers of Baal and Asherah, and you're going to get the dirt of the world on you. You're going to sin unintentionally. He said, there's a sin for that. Some of you are going to sin just because you don't have the ability to stay away from it. So uh, you're prone to alcoholism. You are prone to wander in other areas and you walk by this place where somebody says, come in here and you make a decision in that moment that ends up wrecking your life or taking you down a path. There were uh, sacrifices for that. Verse 27, I want you to see this in your Bibles. If one person sins unintentionally, he is to present a a year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest will then make an atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acts in error, sinning unintentionally. And when he makes an atonement for him, he will be forgiven. Now, let's just pause right there. Um, Every single sin that we do, we know in our hearts, we made a decision to do it, right? Anybody here just sin on accident and you woke up, you're, whoa, whoa. I didn't know I was gonna do that. No, the process in our life typically is one little decision, another little decision, another little decision, and all of a sudden, all the steps we've been taking lead to sin. Little unclean areas in our life that we've allowed to pile up until all of a sudden it happens. And you can see that little trail that's leading to the decision. That's what God cleans up. He not only forgives us our sins, but cleanses us from unrighteousness. That's the sin itself and the trail that got you there. What he means unintentionally is, you you didn't set off and say, God, you said I hate this, so I'm going to go do it. That's an intentional sin. Knowing it and setting your mind to go do it. Priest makes an atonement for him. Verse 29 You are to have the same law for the person who acts in error, whether he is an Israelite, an alien, or the one who resides among you. Verse 30, but the person who acts defiantly, whether a native, resident, alien, and blasphemes the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. 
That blasphemes the Lord, literally, you've taken the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, when you get married, uh, if you are a woman classically, within, in our culture, this is still consistent, you'll take the name of that husband. That means I'm identifying as one family with that person. It's the same idea here. You take the name of the Lord, you're saying, I am his. I'm going to act like I am his. I am for him alone. To blaspheme him was to take that name but act as if you were not his. He blasphemes the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken the commandment. His guilt remains on him. Verse 32, context. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. So they've just heard from the Lord. These are the things you're to do. These are the things you're not to do. If you do this and you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it and you just say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing, that is an intentional sin. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the entire community and they placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done to him. And the Lord told Moses, this man's to be put to death. The entire community is to stone him outside the camp. So the entire community brought him outside the camp and stoned him as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is an intense moment. He's dead. He stiff-armed God. This is the context, I believe, that the author of Hebrews is asking us to consider. Unintentional sin as a believer, that's it. But it is actually possible for us not to have a sin of just a wandering heart or a weak spirit. It's possible as a believer to know what God wants for you and for you to say, I, Lord, I don't want what you want for me. I'm stiff arming you and I'm gonna go, I'll take the consequences. Now let me ask you, as soon as God says stuff like this, we get upset. Do you know that? Can you just feel it in the room right now? Justin, I woke up an hour earlier for this. <laughs> this is what we're here for? This is like a bad dream. We don't want to share this passage. In fact, if you go through and see, uh, I could give you two or three popular pastors, and this chapter in its entirety is not preached so they can skip the context. They do not like talking about this. Our culture does not like engaging with this. This isn't the warm, fuzzy Jesus that we have been sold in so many contexts. But it is the loving God, and this is the thing you need to remember. Do you know that if you love your kids, you warn them about the consequences of bad decisions? Anybody warned a teenager about driving with other people in the car? If you have a teenager, you did, and you warned them more than once. You will warn them until they say, Mom, Dad, stop. Don't text and drive. Don't listen to your cousin. Let them pick whatever they want on the radio. You keep your hands, 10 and two, focus on the road. Why, lives are at stake. Dad, don't be dramatic. It's not dramatic, it's true. Anybody here warned somebody that they love that's trapped in alcoholism or drug addiction? You know, sitting right here in the room are people who are alive today only because somebody loved them enough to say, if you keep doing that, you're gonna die. If you keep doing that, you will lose your family, you'll lose your business, you will lose your relationships, and you will physically die. And they're here. They didn't love the admonition. 
All right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But there are people here that are only here today because somebody loved them enough to say, stop it or you'll die. That's what this passage is saying. Do you know that even though you're secure in heaven and God will still bring you safely home, he reserves the right to say, what are you doing? You know what? Stop that. Come up here. That's what he'll do. And I think this passage is highlighting that very thing. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? He says, you can't go and cover this up. You can't say, oh yeah, that was my bad. You're willfully stiff-arming him. It's interesting that the New Testament context, the only other place where these same, the same language is used is found in a passage we're gonna go to in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 11, listen to this. After telling us what he received from the Lord and what he passed on to them, it says on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, cup, he goes through that. We're gonna walk through that passage as we do the Lord's Supper. He tells them that this is a solemn moment, but look at verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and in this way he eats the bread and drinks the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many, get this passage, are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Euphemism for death. If we were properly judging ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Something happens in the life of the believer, something happens in the life of the church, and the judgment removes that individual so that they won't continue to sin, so that the world doesn't continue to think, oh, this is just how Christians act. They're no different from the world so that you will be able to enjoy eternity forever with him, but you will not be able to continue in the destructive pattern. I can remember asking uh, the pastor that preceded me here, Pastor Ron, you know, there are these serious warnings in scripture. Have you ever seen anything happen that you thought, oh yeah, that's because they knew the truth, they stiff-armed God and there was a consequence. And he shared with me a story when I was first coming into ministry here, he says, yeah, I don't talk about it very often. He said, but there was a moment that gets into my mind every time that I prepare for the Lord's Supper. He said, I was an intern and I was called away from my family to go help this church. I was supposed to be the associate pastor, just helping out with a little bit of youth ministry and you know, filling in. And I got called away to this pastor's home and he said, and while I was there, he said, hey, just stay with me and I'm in that pastor's home. And he said, I actually saw overt sin happening. And not only was there overt sin that was happening in that home, I was solicited to be a part of that overt sin. He said, and I knew that they were having an elders meeting and I said, I gotta go tell somebody, I can't be here around this. He said, I'm not even sure that I can stay away from it if I stay in the presence of this sin. And so he says, I'm gonna go tell the elders. And they said, if you go and tell them, we're gonna tell them you brought this in here. You're this young intern. You're the one that are, is bringing this stuff around. You'll never be a pastor. And he says, I don't care the consequences. Somebody has to know. And he walked down to an elder meeting. He said, this is happening right up the street in the parsonage. This is happening in that home. And the elders said, yeah, we're aware. Those stories have come out. We haven't really taken time to invest. He's, he's been popular here. 
The pastor refused to deal with it. The family refused to deal with it. And the elders refused to deal with it. It was Lord's Supper. The man got up to preach. And he said, and he, he died in the pulpit that next morning. Now, this is rare. It doesn't happen all the time. Not every death that happens, okay? We need to remember all of the not everys. But in this moment, he said, I was stuck with this thought. Don't stiff arm God. He says, and one of the elders told me later, he said, I believe that was the judgment of God on us and on him for not dealing with overt sin. God said, I will not. And he removed him. Habitual sin, rejecting God's plan, will cost you. This is why earlier in Hebrews 10, it says to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's not just so that you'll be happy. It's not just so that you'll have fellowship. It is because there may be in this room lives that are at stake. It's that serious. You may have a friend that has been stiff-arming God, and they're about to make a decision that will cost them their life. Don't get caught up in that addiction. Don't continue in that relationship. Don't follow that pattern. Don't run with those people. This will not end well. Don't trample on grace. Second thing we see here, though, two point. Are we doing okay, by the way, guys? You holding in? Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Don't trample on grace. Second point. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence. Same term I have uh, in the notes there, Mark 10, 50. Uh, throw away is the idea uh, with a garment. He threw aside the garment in order to run ahead. The garment was entangling him. It's the same idea here. It says, remember in the earlier days when after you'd been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings? Some of you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. You sympathized with prisoners. You accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. By the way, this is how a believer deals with persecution. This is how a believer that really believes in an eternal home and that they have a reward that is in heaven, this is how you deal with a situation where the world is oppressive. It doesn't say, do you remember that time that you all got together and you had a massive revolt? No revolt. Rejoicing when their stuff got confiscated. I I want you to hear this. We need to make sure that we are thoughtful, that whenever we have a voice, if you live in a democracy, you ought to vote. There's no reason that you shouldn't. Amen? Amen. You go and you raise that voice, but you need to live in such a way that Christ is on display and your hope is not in America, it is in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. And in the event that your stuff gets stolen, it is going to happen before the final end days. Believers will have their stuff taken. You know what they're rejoicing over? Praise God, they could tell I was a believer. All right? Anyone on your street convict you of being a believer? Is there any evidence, any trail that they should take your stuff too as long as they're taking it away from believers? It says here that they are rejoicing. They're sympathizing with prisoners. They're going and meeting their needs, accepting with joy the confiscation of your possessions. 
This does not mean we should just lay out the welcome lat and be tra- uh, mat and be trampled over. It does mean that we need to make sure that we have grace and peace written on our face when the world goes wonky. He says, don't throw away your confidence. He says, so, verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Why would they throw away their confidence? Because the world seems to be a mess. It seems like everything is against us. We're just gonna throw our hands up and say, I I don't even know why I keep trying. I don't know why I keep following. I don't know why I keep going to church. Well, why do you keep going? Because there's a greater reward than just the stuff that you have in your life. It is worth following the Lord. He's saying you ran all this way. You've been sympathizing. You've lost. You've been overrun by all of these persecutions. Why are you quitting right now? There's a famous story, a profound one, actually. Francis, or, uh, Florence Chadwick, a swimmer. Uh, there's a picture of her uh, on the, the swim from Catalina to California. Looks like she's really having a pleasant time. <laughs> Reporter is diving into the water. Uh, she made many different uh, significant swims. She swam the English Channel. Uh, she survived many icy waters. She swims from Catalina to California. And the very first time that she tried this, she's almost to the California shore. Uh, at the pace that she was swimming, it was less than 20 minutes away from the shore, but the fog had gotten in so tight around the boat. She'd been stung on the way over. She was overwhelmed by the swim. She didn't know how far she had to go. She kept swimming and swimming, and she said, I can't make it. And as she gets into the boat, the fog lifts, and they can see the shore. She was almost there. She had swum the entire distance. And at the pace she was swimming, even slow as it was at the very end, within 20 minutes of reaching the shore, The next time she swam it, she actually set a record for speed. She said it helped charge her up so that she could continue to finish the race. But nobody on board challenged her. Nobody was pushing her forward. And she threw away her confidence. She still had strokes left in her. She couldn't see the end. She lost sight of the goal and she let go. This is what we tend to do. We start looking around at the mess. The fog in the world right now has rolled in. There's an intensity in life that is overwhelming. And instead of looking to eternity and the promise and the reward, the the love of Christ and the guarantee that he will see us safely home, we're swimming in icy waters and we just say, you know, I've tried. I, I know I've swam a long way. I can't do it anymore. I'm getting in the boat. I'm gonna join all the other people and we stiff arm God. He says, don't throw away your confidence. Please don't do this. In fact, the implication is here, this is you throwing away your confidence, not that there isn't any reason to be confident. You've just grown weak. Confidence here is a choice and endurance has a reward. I want you to think about this. There's some statements in scripture that are really profound. Uh, One author has put together a list of uh, 13 crowns and 14 rewards promised in the Bible. I'm just going to read some of these rewards that are promised from Genesis through Revelation. There's a reward for saving faith. You, You get God himself. There's a reward for keeping God's statutes, for conducting ourselves well. 
Uh, there's an unnamed reward in uh, six different passages um, for conducting ourselves well. We don't know what that reward is, but he says, I'm going to take care of it and I'm going to reward you differently. There's a sure reward uh, for sowing righteousness, for being kind to the poor, for being persecuted because of him. There's a great reward, it says, for welcoming true prophets or righteous men, for doing acts of righteousness and pr uh, for the praise of God rather than for the praise of men, for loving your enemies and lending to and doing good to them without expectation. There's a great reward, Luke 6 says, for actions found to be of good quality in God's sight, for doing good wholeheartedly, for standing your ground during persecution and suffering with confident perseverance, for choosing to suffer mistreatment for God's sake, and for faithfully continuing in the teaching of Christ. There are rewards, all rewards crowns that are promised in the Bible. For those who delight in the Lord by being humble, crown of salvation. For those who esteem wisdom, crown of splendor. For those who lead a righteous life, the crown of blessing. For the ransom of the Lord who walk in the way of holiness, a crown of everlasting joy and gladness. For the poor, brokenhearted, captive prisoners, mourners who are oaks of righteousness. In Isaiah 61, a crown of beauty. For those who compete for the sake of the gospel, in the game of serving the Lord after strict training, there's a crown that will last forever, 1 Corinthians 9 says. For those who act like a brother to other believers, for those who have fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith, as well as for all those who have longed for his appearing, a crown of righteousness. For those who have persevered under trial and stood the test, the crown of life. For those who have remained faithful unto death during trials and persecution, for those Church elders who have been faithful as godly examples over their flock, an unfading crown of glory. For elders, heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles who are seated before the throne of God, crowns of gold for running the race all the way to the end, a victor's crown. There are crowns listed in scripture, and God says there are crowns and rewards, and I am coming. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? This is not the final step. The only thing to look forward to is not the paycheck you've been getting from wherever you're working. Amen? Confidence is a choice. The Lord and his reward are coming soon. I have a couple of uh, passages written down in there. We're out of time. I'm just gonna look at Isaiah 62, 11. Isaiah 62, 11, um, because if you read that all the way through, uh, you will see that that context in Isaiah 62 through 64 um, follows this same pattern that we're looking at in Hebrews. 62, 11, there is a statement that is made that is echoed in Revelation. It says, look, the Lord is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, look, your salvation is coming. Jesus is coming. And his wages are with him. His reward accompanies him. And they will be called the holy people, the Lord's redeemed. And you will be called cared for and a city not deserted. It gets echoed in the book of Revelation. But here is the promise that is made there. That the book of Hebrews would have been looking back to. And in the book of Revelation that all of us are leaning into. Jesus is coming. His reward is with him. He is near. Amen? 
And he says, do not stiff arm God right now, not while you are so close to the finish line. Stay faithful. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But remember that context in 1 Corinthians asks us to look in our own hearts. In fact, this entire passage this morning is one giant heart check. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we actually just have a little video there. It's just words to help guide you through. Just meditate on that idea. Is my heart ready to take these elements? It says, let a man examine himself and eat this in a worthy manner. We're going to take elements here, pictures of the body and the blood of Jesus. These elements do not save you, but they are an opportunity for holy reflection. As we look at this, Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. It was, it was broken. We break this and we say, this is my body, which is for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. I, I'm sacrificing my life on your behalf so that you do not have to live in eternal separation from God. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He asks us to live in remembrance of him. To focus our lives thoughtfully, eager to see him. We have an opportunity right now to just bow our heads, close our eyes and say, Lord God, will you help me? If there is any sin in your life right now that you're participating in that's cutting you off from God, First John tells us if we just confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You right now say, Lord God, will you forgive me? Lay it at his feet and you're clean. Don't stiff arm God. If you are hearing this today, you have the opportunity to turn your heart, not stiff arm God, but run to him, and you will find grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask right now that you would help us to apply this message, a heavy one. This morning, we come in tired, uh, Father, coming into a, a passage that is heavy, I pray that you would help us to hear it appropriately. The warnings given in Scripture are warnings given so that we might not experience the consequences. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live with eyes wide open, to consider what you say in Scripture, to run to you and say, Lord, please, will you forgive me today while there is an opportunity? I pray, Father, you'd help us to look into our own lives. If there is anything that is getting in between us and you, I pray, Father, you'd help us collectively to just say, Lord, will you please fix this? Father, if there is a wound between us and another brother, make that commitment right now in our heart that we would not let today go by without calling them, apologizing, laying that at their feet. Father, let us live in a community of faithful believers who love each other, who love you, who are repentant, and who live in grace. We ask now that you'd help us as we investigate our lives, help us to be honest, self-reflective, but also confident that we have a risen Savior who has paid for all of the sin. There's not one left behind. Father, let us right now take these elements without stiff-arming you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Familiarize yourself with those elements there. And if you would open the side that has the bread. 
We're going to follow those instructions out of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. flip that over and open the other side the scripture continues it says in the same way he took the cup after supper and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me scripture concludes for as often As you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we've all gathered here this morning and we have heard these stern warnings from Scripture. A family moment where we listen to you, our Father, where we listen to you, the author of Scripture, remind us this isn't something we're playing at. This is an opportunity, even with these elements, to make a declaration to the world. We are yours. You are our Savior. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. And we ask now that you would help us not to stiff arm at any point, not to stumble along in our faith, but to walk in victory, transformed by Christ, living out what it means to be living by grace. Father, we pray that we would put you on display until we see Jesus face to face, the one who is coming soon, reward in hand. Father, help us to live as delighted children. We pray that you'd enable us to do this, that we would walk faithful. Empower that. Help us to reach out to our neighbor, to encourage that. But we pray it would all be done in Jesus' name. Amen.